John chapter 2 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to um, read from chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. First John's right at the end of the Bible. The easiest way to find it probably is to go to the book of Revelation and turn left just one or two pages, and you'll find First John chapter 2. This week I heard an interview on the radio with a musician and hymn writer, Keith Getty. He said he quoted Martin Luther Martin Luther said that it is the preacher's job to explain the Bible to the people. That's what I'm going to try to do. It's the preacher's job to explain the Bible to the people, and it's the musician's job to make sure they carry it home with them. Uh, That is a high calling for the men and women who lead us in worship, and I'm grateful to Ryan for his leadership and those who serve in various capacities on Sunday morning. We, as a congregation, try to sing well and they uh, lead us, and I'm grateful to God for it. Now, if you've made it to 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 3, and uh, you'll notice something unusual, perhaps. My translation, the NIV, begins with a new paragraph here in verse 3. If you have an ESV, uh, which is another fine translation, verse 3 is in the middle of a paragraph. Well, uh, remember that the paragraphs, neither the paragraphs, nor the verse numbers, nor the chapter numbers are original, Uh, to the text, and these paragraph divisions, my voice is changing as I'm talking up here, Um, not that way, not that way, not that way, but it is changing in tone, well, I'll keep talking. So, uh, remember I I said that 1 John is difficult to to, uh, divide and to organize and to outline, well, here, these divisions in our translations are just an indication of that, of the difficulty in putting this together. Nevertheless, we're going to read in verse 3. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. In the late 1800s, the sanitary district of Chicago uh, began a massive effort to reverse the flow of the Chicago River. All the way throughout the 1800s, the Chicago River flowed from the west of the city through the city and into Lake Michigan. And uh, it was a shallow river, it was a very slow-moving river, and it was basically a disgusting cesspool. Um, It was the main source of water for the city, but it was where people threw their trash and they threw their sewage. Uh, It was a place that would be the the cause of outbreaks of cholera and typhoid fever. It stank. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire, the Chicago Fire crossed over the river because the river was so filled with flammable garbage that it just caught on fire and moved across the uh, river. So they started this project to reverse the flow of the river. They began by digging 28 canals, 28, sorry, miles of canals. They actually moved more dirt and rock than it took to build the Panama Canal. Uh, They put in locks and gates. And on January 2nd, 1900, a worker opened a a floodgate at Lake Michigan. And all of a sudden, the Great Lakes, instead of the, the water flowing into the Great Lakes, the water now flowed out of the Great Lakes through the city of Michigan, uh, Chicago, all the way to the Illinois River and then eventually to the Mississippi River. And it cleaned the Chicago River. 
huge source of fresh water. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see that happen? And how immediately the smell improved in that city? When this great reservoir of fresh water comes and cleans the city? Uh, the society, the American Society of, of Civil Engineers has ne- said this is one of the greatest engineering projects of all time. I think the Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle John would like this story, and I think he would like it as it would be helpful in trying to explain what it means to follow Jesus. In a conversation that Jesus had one day with a woman in a, a well outside the city of Sychar, he told this woman uh, that uh, he could give her living water that would bubble up and overflow out of her heart like a fountain. He said, I will be to you a source of, of life and goodness and wholeness, like a mighty river that enters the lives of Jesus' followers and changes them. This new life is markedly different than the life that we produce on our own. And what we just read are four verses that John wrote that set out the basic message of what this new kind of life in Jesus is like. Uh, frankly, I'm not sure that what's here, the basic message of this verses, these verses is all that stunning. John is correcting false teachers, that's true. But I'm not sure that what he wrote is all uh, that new. We Christians, we are different people. We're supposed to be different people. We expect that. I think everybody expects it. You don't need to be a follower of Jesus to expect that someone who claims to know Jesus is going to be a different sort of person, a, a better sort of person. That's changing in our culture, but we still live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where where someone's saying, I'm a Christian, that, that's supposed to be a good thing. It means that your life is supposed to be positively different. That's what John's saying here. What this passage does help us, though, even further, is it tells us why followers of Christ are different people. It tells us that this new sort of life that we have is rooted in our relationship with God. It's not rooted in our resolutions. It's not rooted in our culture or our family upbringing. It's not rooted in who our parents are. It's not rooted in our class, our ethnicity, our nationality. It's rooted in knowing him. Not just knowing him, but loving him. This morning what I want to do is I want to walk through this text and to mark our progress, I have three headings. Um, They're perhaps not crucial, but they're going to help us keep us together as we move through this text. Uh, in, In verses Four, uh, three and four, we're going to find this equation, knowing God equals obeying God. Then in verse five, we're going to talk about this equation, obeying God equals loving God. And then in verse six, we're going to see that being in God equals living like Jesus. Do you know why followers of Jesus talk and think and pray about being different sorts of people? Well, here's why. Uh, Let's start in verse 3 and and 4. Knowing God equals obeying God. Knowing God equals obeying God. Verse 3 begins uh, by this way. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Or your translations might say, by this we know that we have come to know. Or in this we know that we have come to know. And and just this introduction here introduces us to one of the major themes of John's letter, or reminds us of this letter. 
See, the Apostle John wrote this book to oppose some false teachers. There were false teachers who were claiming to have a new understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And they were claiming that they had this new relationship that was different than the old people, uh, older uh, Christians, their relationship. And it was new and better. And we really know God. You maybe kind of know God, but we really know God. And John wrote this letter to confront that teaching. So all the way through his book, he, he includes phrases like this. Uh, we know, by this we know that we have come to know him. Here's how you know you know you're a Christian. Uh, it's here, that phrase is here in 1 John 2, 3. And then look over with me at John 3, 14. Look what it says, 1 John, 1 John 3, 14. It says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. So there's another sign. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, it says, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. And chapter 5, verse 2, this is how we know. You see that theme all the way through John, 1 John? This is how we know. This is how we know. Uh, we're going to be talking about these uh, as we move through this book. One of the reasons that I suggested to the elders that we study 1 John is to help people in the congregation who struggle with this, with knowing whether they know. How do, I, how do I know, how do I really know that I'm a follower of Jesus? Am I really a Christian? What sort of evidence should I look for in my life and how do I find it? So far, uh, the evidence that we've come to as we've studied this book, we're into chapter 2 now, is that, that you, start, you start with how you know you know by believing the message that the apostles preached. Where do you begin? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, do you believe what the apostles taught about the Lord Jesus Christ? That Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son incarnate. Some people call that the truth test. Do you believe the truth about Jesus that the apostles preached? Now here, in these verses, is the first introduction of what some people have called the morality test. What does your life look like? What do you believe? The truth test. What does your life look like? The morality test. This is how we know that we have come to know him. Now, before even we look at the morality test, we have to think about this phrase, knowing God. We have come to know him. Uh, I'm going to talk about grammar twice this morning. I'm terribly sorry. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Scott told me that he thought I was professorial. Well, class, here's some grammar, right? The verb we have come to know in verse 3 is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense verb. A perfect tense verb is a verb that describes action that happened in the past, but that has ongoing implications for today. Something that happened in the past but has ongoing implications. We use the word married a lot like that. Um, uh, in 1995, I married Kathy. It was a past event with ongoing, very happy, ongoing effects in my life. Uh, or you could say, I joined Grace Baptist Church of Millersville. A past event with ongoing implications. Or... Uh, uh, negatively, I was convicted of a crime, a past event with ongoing present implications. We have come to know God, a past event with ongoing effects. 
Now, with language, with this language, John is talking about following Jesus as, it is, as if it is an event that takes place in time. Human beings are not born knowing God. There was a time in the past when you, come, have, when you came to know God. Every true follower of Jesus can say this. I have come to know God. And everyone who is not a follower of Jesus cannot say this. Uh, at least in the sense that John is talking here. This reminds us of our natural spiritual condition. Naturally, we are people, human beings, do not naturally know God. We're not born knowing God. There was a time when the Apostle Paul entered in the, uh, in the city of Athens and he started preaching about uh, Jesus and God's plan. And the people in Athens said to him, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't have any information about We don't understand what you're saying. We want to know more, but we don't know. The problem the Bible describes uh, for human beings is that it says we are not naturally, we do not naturally know God. And actually the Bible, there's something worse. Not only do we not naturally know God, but the Bible says that we are naturally estranged from God. We don't know him, that's true, and we don't like him very much. Now how can that be? How can you not like someone you don't know? Have you ever tried to te- uh, feed vegetables to a toddler? So, you remember this experience, right? Um, you, you sit down with this new vegetable with a toddler, and you, you spoon it out, and you try to put it in their mouth, and they hate it. And you say, now you can't hate this. You've never even tried it. How can you not like it? You don't even know if you don't like it. You've never tried it. Some of you are thinking about green beans right now. I have tried green beans. Okay, let's move on. All right, so... so How is it, little toddler, that you are disinclined to eat this vegetable uh, and and you don't know whether you like it or not? Um, My wife says that you have to try something five times before you really don't, before you really know if you don't like it. That's what we used to tell ourselves when we'd force feed our children vegetables. So um, the Bible says that we don't know God and even not knowing him, we are disinclined to know him. Why is that? It's because the truth about him, if we learn the truth about him, it reveals some unpleasant truths about us. We don't compare well with God and we don't like it. We don't, to borrow John's language, he's light and we're darkness and his light reveals things about ourselves that we don't like. So you have to come to a point where you know him. Some of you, for followers of Jesus, I can ask you, tell me about the time that you came to know God. Everyone who is a member of our church has filled out an application and they wrote on it, this is the time that I came to know God. And we asked them to tell their stories. Last month at our baptism service, there were people there who told us, this is when I came to know God. I did not know God before and this is how I came to know him. It's an unusual phrase, oh, not that unusual. The Bible uses a lot, I suppose, this phrase to know God. But it's, it's interesting that John would use it because the opponents he had in mind, they were all about knowledge. They loved to talk about knowing God. Um, in fact, these opponents appeared to, to develop into a, a group, a, 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 a religious group that, that took to themselves the name Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnostic, which is a Greek word, it means knowers. We're the knowers. And John says, well, I'll tell you what it means to know God. You who think you're knowers, 
some people think that knowing God means having some sort of mystical experience or mastering some sort of strange myths, or having deep feelings, or having ethereal dreams, or having good memories of going to church with your grandmother when you were a little child. But it's possible to be deceived about this. It's possible to be wrong. Jesus imagined himself a day that there would be people who would stand before him, and they'll say to him, Lord... We prophesied in your name and we drove out demons in your name and we performed many miracles in your name. And and Jesus said, I will look at them and say, I never knew you. It's very possible to be deceived about whether or not you know God. So John, tell us, John, if it's possible to be deceived. There's people who are claiming to know God. Tell me, how do I know that I know God? And John says plainly, Here it is. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Verse 4 says the same thing from the opposite perspective. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Verse 4 is the opposite. Now, astute readers, if you're an astute reader, you may have recognized here a slight change in how John writes Remember back in chapter 1, John is quoting, he's, he's thinking about his opponents and he quotes them. And in John chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 10, he says, if we claim, if we say, if we say, he identifies himself with these, these false teachers. But in verse 4, he starts to distance himself a little bit and he says, whoever says, or the one who says. Just that very subtle change. I think John makes that subtle change because he's, he's starting to get a little bit more, um, he's starting to, he wants to exhort them. He's moving from preaching to meddling here a little bit. So he's separating himself from these false teachers. The one who says this, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. So knowing God equals obeying God. I want to think about this connection with you for a few minutes, and I have four observations that I want to make about this connection between knowing God and obeying God. First of all, this is not the first place in the Bible, nor the first time in the Bible, that the Bible makes this connection between knowing God and obeying God. It's a theme that's all the way through Scripture. I wrote down two verses, uh, two passages uh, in your note sheet. Look at Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Here's the place. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge, my translation says acknowledgement, but knowledge of God in the land. So there's no knowledge of God. What is there? There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. There's no knowledge of God. So what do you have instead? You have all these violations of the Ten Commandments. Because if you had true knowledge of the God, of God, you would have obedience. See that connection? Hosea makes it. We won't take the time to read it, but Jeremiah 31 makes that connection too. To know God is to have God's word written by him in your mind and your hearts. So this is not the first time, this is not the first place that the Bible makes this connection between knowing God and obeying God. Now a second observation here about this connection Notice here that obeying God is not a condition for knowing God, but the consequence of knowing God. It's very important. Obeying God is not a condition for knowing God. It's the consequence 
of knowing God. The obedience does not produce the relationship. Rather, the relationship produces the obedience. You have a relationship with God. You are in a relationship with God, and it produces the obedience. The doing comes as a result of the being. I, I am in a relationship with God, and therefore I obey. I once heard a, a, a preacher say that Frank Sinatra got it exactly wrong. Frank Sinatra used to say, do, be, do, be, do, be, do. And the Bible actually teaches, be, do, be, do, be, do, be. If, it, because you have a relationship with God, you are in relationship with God, then the obedience is a consequence of knowing Him, not a condition for knowing Him. Now, observation number three. Uh, John is not writing here about sinless perfection. This is not about sinless perfection, but a trajectory of your life. It can't be about sinless perfection. It can't be about being sinless. Because remember, John wrote in, in uh, John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Or in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. Or chapter 2, verse 1, I, I, I write this to you so you will not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. He can't be talking about being sinless. He's talking about your trajectory of your life, not perfection. I mention that because those of you who are particularly tender-hearted, sometimes this book really it gets under your skin and aggravates you. Especially, look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. He says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. You read that verse and you think to yourself, well, I sin. I sin all the time. Is John saying I'm not a follower of Jesus? He's not talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about your trajectory of life. John Calvin wrote this. John, he does not mean, John the Apostle, does not mean that there is a class of people who wholly satisfy the law and keep his commandments perfectly and he says, no such human being has been found in the world. But those, he's speaking about those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity huh, to form their life in obedience to God. He's talking about your trajectory in life. David Paulison describes following Jesus this way. He says, sometimes as followers of Jesus, we run the race set out before us, and we go for it. We're, we're running the race. We're following God. We love to read the Bible and pray every day, and we're sharing the gospel with people, and we can't wait to get to growth. We are we're running the race. Sometimes we walk. We're in the right direction. We're making good progress. We're walking the race. Sometimes we crawl. We're still going. We're crawling. And sometimes all we can do is face in the right direction. So the question is, what, what way are you facing? Are you facing toward him or are you facing away from him? This passage um, demands that we do two things. We have to keep two things in mind as we read this passage. On the one hand... Some of you in this room need comfort. You need a gentle reminder that this is not about sinlessly following Jesus, that that's not the standard. Because no one here meets that standard. But on the other hand, 
There are some of you who need to hear this message and you need to hear it boldly. If you're not obeying God, you don't know him and you're not a follower of Jesus. Knowing God equals obeying him. You need to hear that. Now here's a fourth observation about this connection here. The connection between knowing and obeying God. It it reflects the change that happens when you become a follower of Jesus. This connection between knowing God and obeying God reflects the change that happens when you become a follower of Jesus. Several years ago, a group of men from our church were at a conference, and David Platt used an illustration that I'm going to shamelessly steal right now. So uh, I imagine that I came into the room, and I was a few minutes late, and I came to the pulpit, and I was huffing and puffing a little bit, and I said, I'm sorry that I'm late, but I just got hit by a truck out on uh, Walnut Hill Road. He was going like 45 miles an hour and I got caught on a fender and he dragged me all the way down the street. There was blood everywhere and I heard my own bones cracking. So that's why I'm late. And I was standing here like this. You would look at me and say, are you sure? Right? Because you're walking pretty well for a guy who just got hit by a truck. Usually when people get hit by a truck, they don't walk so well. And... I don't, I don't see any blood at all on your clothes. There was blood everywhere. What happened? And if you were dragged, there's no holes in your clothes either. No gravel in your skin. Are, are you sure that that's what happened to you? The good news about the Lord Jesus comes with the force of a truck designed and built and driven by the Holy Spirit. And if you get hit... There will be change. It's inevitable. John here is making an assertion about the authority of God. Uh, This week I listened to an excellent lecture by Sam Albury, and it's called uh, uh, Seven Ways to Navigate a Sexually Shifting Culture. I listened to the lecture twice. It was really good. It was about 25 minutes. You can find it on the Gospel Coalition website. And, and uh, one of the things that he says is he talks about how our culture is changing. And he argued that the most significant change in our culture has to do with how, how human beings view themselves. In our culture now, the real you is the person that you feel you are. It's for you to flourish as a human being, you need to look deep down into your heart and you need to figure out who you really are and then you need to live out who you really are. And no one else can tell you who you are. In fact, if other people are trying to tell you who you are, they're oppressing you and they're not going to let you flourish. So you have to discover it on your own who you are and you live out who you are. Your body... This flesh that you have is an accident. It's, it's incidental. It's not a gift. It's not a calling. It's a blank canvas, and you can do with your body whatever you want to express the real you that you find inside of you. The problem, though, with that view is that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 is that, we, is that if we dig into our hearts that deeply, you won't find the real you. You'll find real problems. The angst that so many people feel is not from those outside, uh, from what's outside our hearts, the angst that we feel is actually from inside your heart. Sam Albury said that the only time that the Lord Jesus used the word self was not in front of the word identity, but in front of the word denial. 
Knowing God means obeying God. It, realize how con- countercultural this is. To cede the right to Him to tell us what to do and who and what to love and where to go and what to value. Uh, Drew Dyke wrote a book called Generation X Christian. He interviewed a lot of young adults who have left Christianity. And one young man he interviewed uh, had recently converted to a Wiccan religion. And uh, he said, talk about why he rejected Christianity. He said, ultimately why I left is that the Christian God demands that you submit to his will. In Wicca, it's just the other way around. Your will is paramount. We believe in gods and goddesses, but the deities we choose to serve are based on our wills. So if this is the standard, knowing God equals obeying God, if this is the standard, how do you measure up? Is there visible evidence in your life that you know God? Do the people that are close to you, do they, do they see it? This is one of the reasons that we have growth groups in our church, so that people can see in our lives evidences of the grace of God. It takes time. Will the members of your growth group see that you know God because of your obedience, because of your progress in obedience? It's interesting. It's one of the, other, the ways that other people play a role in the assurance that you have. Some of you, you struggle. Am I really Christian? I don't know. And you struggle internally and by yourself and with great worry and angst over this all by yourself. And God's purpose is for other followers of Jesus to be able to help you with this, to be able to testify to you. I see the evidence of God's grace in your life. For a number of years, uh, the elders filled out annual reviews for us as uh, pastors. And for the first 10 years or so I was here, on the question about weaknesses, the elders wrote about my bent towards sarcasm. 10 years they wrote this on my evaluation. And that, then it started to diminish on the form a little bit. Not completely. Um, sarcasm is my spiritual gift after all. But, but um, so I, I went and I asked one of the elders about it. I said, so... Tell me, what, it seems to be diminishing, and, and I was afraid they'd just given up, you know, 10 years. Why are we going to write this again? Instead, actually, this uh, kind man said to me that he thinks that I have changed, that I've grown in my life by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. I've heard people who uh, know Tim Keller really well say that Tim Keller is a remarkably gentle man, that he never says an ill word about anyone else. Now, if that's the standard, I still have a lot of room to grow. But, but I'm on the way. Are you on the way? Is this a trajectory of your life? Because knowing God equals obeying him. Now, we have to move on to another connection in the verse, and I know we don't have any time left. We're going to talk about these briefly, so let's keep going here. Verse 5, this connection. Second, I want you to notice here that obeying God equals loving God. Obeying God equals loving God. Verse 5 says, But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Um, What's interesting here in this passage is this phrase, love for God. That's what my translation says. Your translation might say, love of God. Love of God. So, let's think about this here. Here's where we're going to get grammatical again. So, 
uh, if it says, if anyone obeys his word, love, the love of God is truly made complete in them. Does this refer to God's love for us being made complete in us? Or does this refer to our love for God being made complete in us? So which is it? Is it his love for us or our love for him? Now, here's really inside baseball. If you've ever taken a Greek class, now you know I'm wondering out loud whether or not this is an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. If that doesn't mean anything to you, just forget about it. It doesn't matter. But that's what I'm asking. Is it God's love for me or my love for God? And I think that this, this passage, and the NIV translates it this way, this is talking about our love for God. Our love for God is manifest in our obedience to him. Um, look at John, 1 John 5, 3. 1 John 5, 3. Look what it says. In fact, this is love for God, or the love of God, to keep his commands. And uh, look at 1 John, or well, I'll read here, John 14, 21. Jesus said, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. To know God is to love God, and to love God is to obey God. John here is not writing about a cold, sterile sort of life. We don't approach God's commands with the same way that you read your dorm rules when you move in. It's the expression of a relationship. I, Howard Marshall, said, Obedience is a sign that the thought of pleasing and serving God is supreme in the Christian's motives and molds his conducts conduct. If you love someone, you want to please them. And those who know God love God. I benefited this year from reading a book by Charles Spurgeon. It's a collection of his pulpit prayers. And here's a line from one of them. Remember, uh, Charles Spurgeon prayed in King James English. So this is what he said. Oh Lord, it has seemed impossible not to love thee. For thou art so supremely lovable, so full of goodness, so perfect. Thou hast manifested thyself to us as love. And shall not love go out towards love? So knowing God equals obeying God. And obeying God is a sign that we love God. And the text says our love for God is brought to completion. It's perfected in us as we obey uh, it's brought to full flower, but it can still grow. Let, let me explain how this might work. Uh, my daughter, Claire, uh, makes excellent chocolate chip cookies. They're really good. Uh, when she first learned how to make chocolate chip cookies, they were okay. They were not great, but they were okay. She would get them out of the oven. She'd set them on the, the pan and uh, set them on the stove. They'd cool a little bit. And we would eat them, and they were okay. They were good. They were, I mean, they're still chocolate chip cookies, right? Okay. She had taken all of the ingredients in the recipe and brought them to completion in the cookies that she had made when she first started making chocolate chip cookies. But now, oh, but now, she brings them out of the oven, and she sets them on the stove and, and it is as if they have fallen, these little morsels of goodness have fallen from heaven itself, these chocolate chip cookies. Same recipe, same ingredients brought to completion. They were good before. Now they're awesome. What happened? Well, the baker has matured. The baker has grown in her skills. 
So the love of God in our obedience comes to full flower, and that flower will get sweeter and more beautiful as time goes on. Why? Because you change and you grow and your love for God grows. It's, it's, it's perfected and being perfected. This is love. This is love that the Spirit produces in us. He wants us to love Jesus like the Father loves Jesus, and that love is life-changing. Now, here's the third equation that forms this text. We'll finish here. Being in God equals living like Jesus. Being in God equals living like Jesus. We're going to start actually at the end of verse 5 and on into verse 6. This is how we know that we are in Him Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This intimate connection that he's writing about here, this knowing God, this being in God, this abiding in God, it, it, it means walking or living like Jesus. God's character is revealed in Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus. I, I imagine here that John's readers have to have a copy of his gospel already because he says, you know, walk like Jesus. Well, how did Jesus walk? Well, read my other book. Right? Um, John has already said that Jesus is our sacrifice. He's our propitiation. But now he is talking about uh, following him. Uh, he's our model. He is everything for us. We're created. We are centered around the Lord Jesus, his identity, his life, his work. How did Jesus walk? Well, how, how do you know you're in him? You have to walk as Jesus walked. You have to live as Jesus lived. Well, how did he walk? How did he live? Frankly, the Lord Jesus was terrible at marketing. Jesus was terrible at it. When he talked about what it means to follow him, he said things like this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's terrible marketing. But we're again confronted with the authority claims of God. If you live like Jesus lived, there will be times that it feels like death. It will feel like following him is killing you. Right up front, from the beginning, Jesus said that, that following him would mean saying no to some of your deepest desires, but in so doing, you'll actually find the real you. You'll save your life. Following Jesus sometimes feels like death. It may feel that way when following Jesus means you need to end a serious relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and the loneliness is killing you. Or when following him means going overseas and leaving your job or your family or everything familiar. Or watching your daughter and son-in-law get on a plane and take your grandkids overseas and you won't see them for two years. Does that feel like death when they go? Sometimes it's a death-like act to forgive someone who hurt you deeply. Or to hold on to hope when it would just be so much easier to despair, just to give in. It would just be so much easier. Uh, it would be, sometimes it feels like death when you're in the middle of battling temptation. We live in a world where conventional wisdom is that if you're not expressing yourself, if you're not if you're not sexually living out your fulfill your desires your dreams then you're not really alive that's conventional wisdom following jesus sometimes feels like a crucifixion that's what he said take up your cross follow me but we stay on that path 
Why do we stay on that path? Because Jesus has gone down it before us. And for him, that path did not just feel like a crucifixion. It was a crucifixion. Who in your life can make such a claim to your loyalty? You'll have critics who'll say to you that you can't possibly follow Jesus like this. You can't possibly obey him like this. You can't possibly trust this book. But what have they done for you that Jesus has done for you? What have they done for you like what Jesus has done for you? He's the one who died for you. He's the one who made it possible for you to know God. He's the one who paid the penalty for your sin that you owe God. He's the one who calls you to trust in him and to find life and forgiveness in him, to turn to him and follow him. No one makes those claims of loyalty to your life like Jesus does because no one has loved you like Jesus has. Who else can lay claim to your loyalty like this? It's true. It's absolutely true. And John knows the Savior of whom he is speaking. Whoever claims to know him, to be in him, to live in him, must walk, must live like Jesus lived. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your great grace to us through the Lord Jesus. You proved how much you loved us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a call this is for us to obey, to love, to walk like the Lord Jesus. Lord, I do pray for this, this morning for the men and women in this room for whom today following Jesus is really hard and it feels like death. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them that they are on the path to finding life. It's what the Lord Jesus promised. I pray for those who are struggling because when they read in John, it says this is how we know that we're in him and they, they struggle so much with doubts and questions. I pray that you would help them to find encouragement and hope even in this passage over the trajectory of their lives. Bring someone around them who would be able to encourage them and observe in their life how they're following you. Lord, we want all of the comfort and all of the hope and all of the stretching and challenging that this book brings to us. Make this true in our lives by the Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.